I open, I open this morning with words from Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Together we will create brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be, but it will be our brave space together, and we will work on it side by side. I invite you now to join in singing our opening song, led by our chorus. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We're going to be singing, Come, Come, Whoever You Are. And the way we'll do it is as follows. We will all sing it together once so that you feel sort of like you know it. And then the chorus in two sections will start it because it is a round. And when I come in, you join me. And we'll sing it a couple more times. Here we go. Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Ours is no caravan of despair. Come yet again, come. lover of leaving ours is no caravan of despair come yet again come 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 us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on this gold sheet in your program. 
so we can add you to our mailing list. You can drop it in the collection basket as it passes later on in the platform service. I want to remind you to please silence your electronic devices so that you can be fully present with us this morning. And now I invite Brian Pashigian to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear each other's shared values in each other's voices. Is Brian here? He's not here. Okay, and now I invite Amanda to do this. I will share. I had invited folks um, to light the candle in honor of the first people to welcome them into this space. And um, Brian, am I on, John? Oh. Do you want the handle? I think John's got it now. Okay. And, uh, and Brian uh, wanted to share that the first person to really welcome him into the Washington Ethical Society was Harry Vider, who was his guide at that time. We had a guide program. And so I honor Perry as I light the candle. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith and human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Amanda. As Amanda lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candlelighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. We ring this bell in solidarity with ethical culture and Unitarian Universalist congregations across the DC region that are also doing so this morning. I'd like us to especially hold in our hearts this morning the people of Puerto Rico and other Caribbean islands that have been decimated by the most recent hurricanes. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. Center yourself in your seat. Get comfortable. Close your eyes if you like. Take a deep breath. 
and let it out. I invite you to recall a time when you felt deeply welcomed. You may have been welcomed by a friend or by someone you didn't know at all. It may have been at someone's house or at a celebration among people you mostly didn't know. Or perhaps it was at Wes. Focus on how that welcoming felt. And breathe.
Thank you so much for that beautiful piece and for sharing it with us. Hello to our folks who are joining us on Facebook this morning or if you are watching later. We are glad to have you with us remotely. And hello to all of you. And I, I send a hello across the lobby to the parents of our fourth through sixth grade classes who are joining their children uh, for class this Sunday as they begin their Our Whole Lives curriculum, part of our comprehensive sexuality education here. It is good to have folks in the building engaged in so many different ways of being community. The Washington Ethical Society board and staff and many of its lay leaders, as you might know, gathers each sort of January, February to put together what they call focus goals, goals for the next 12 to 18 months, things that we hope to accomplish as a community. You can find all four of the focus goals listed on the website. I will say uh, the previous year there were nine of them, which turned out to be rather too many uh, goals for 12 to 18 months, um, uh, unless we have superhuman capacity here. So I was so pleased to have it down to four uh, that I am uh, charged with working with all of you to bring forward in this year and in the time to come. And I wanted to talk about one of them today in this platform. This focus goal reads, okay, ready? It's got a lot of words. Assess our readiness for and develop a plan to move forward with becoming an increasingly multicultural, anti-racist, anti-oppressive, inclusive congregation. As part of this plan, include ample opportunities for those who carry relatively privileged identities, white, cis, straight, etc., to examine that privilege. It's written like, like it was written by a lot of people that live in Washington, wasn't it? <laughs> I do love our focus goals. They have so many words that there are many things I can uh, latch onto as I seek to um, have them come to life in our community. And I think this one was especially wordy because it feels complicated. Moving toward becoming a more multicultural, anti-racist congregation. Martin Luther King Jr. is famous for having said years and years ago, of course, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And his words still ring true. Am I? I feel like the amplification just cut out, Sean. No? Wonderful, good. Um, so his words still ring true. In fact, um, the Multiracial Congregations Project, which is led by Michael Emerson at Rice University, um, defines a multiracial congregation as one where no one racial group is more than 80% of the congregation. So that's our standard. When we, it's sometimes hard, what do we really mean by a multiracial congregation? No more than 80% of the congregation is one, um, is one racial group. Using that standard, only 8% of all Christian congregations in the U.S. are racially mixed to a significant degree. 2 to 3% of mainline Protestant congregations are racially mixed. 2 to 3% of the congregations that are probably in some ways most similar to us 
um, in terms of style and format. Catholic parishes are more integrated at 20%, but as you might know, that often means that there are a couple of congregations within the parish, a Spanish-speaking mass at 11 and an English-speaking mass at 1 or um, similar. So 2 to 3% of mainline Protestant congregations. Not a lot. Complicated enough that you need many words to get there. And why, in that focus goal, do we talk not just about becoming a more multicultural congregation, a more multiracial congregation, but also right there in the goal, an anti-racist and anti-oppressive one? Well, the fascinating thing is that even of those small number of multiracial congregations in America, it turns out that the majority of them still, as Daniel Jose Camacho writes in a blog post on the SALT Collective, in spite of best intentions, still center white experiences and require people of color to make bigger sacrifices in adjusting themselves to white norms. He goes on to write that the sociologist Corey Edwards draws in both qualitative and quantitative methods to support her claim that the majority of interracial churches work to the extent that they are first comfortable places for whites to attend. In other words, a congregation can be multiracial and multicultural, can look from the outside as though it has that all figured out, and yet on the inside, the majority culture is still white-centered, the ideas within it still ascribe to the racist systems and structures in our society at large. So 2 to 3% of congregations, and most of them, aren't really doing it right. It's good. 12 to 18 months, guys. 12 to 18 months is no problem. <laughs> so if this process is long and hard, why, why do we feel called to do it? Or, or do we, in fact? It can't be, I think, about having white people here in this congregation feel happy or proud to be in a multiracial space, in a multiracial congregation. That can't be our impulse. For me, one of the real draws to this work for this congregation is that there is no congregation in the D.C. area or otherwise that is either multiracial or majority people of color that specifically serves humanists. That's not a thing. There's the Black Humanist Alliance and the African Americans for Humanism and African American Atheists. Those are groups that gather, but they don't have a congregation. So there is no space right now in this area or in America that primarily serves people of color or serves a multiracial context for humanists. The other poll for me speaks to our children's community, a community that is more racially diverse than our adult community because of both interracial relationships and also transcultural adoptions. That's true for many progressive congregations, and many of us have the same experience. Our children of color look at the adult community and do not necessarily see themselves reflected back as much as we wish they did. 
Reverend Dr. Kristen Harper, a black Unitarian Universalist minister, um, wrote in a wonderful book called Centering, um, which I'll be quoting from throughout this platform. She wrote, I'm a cradle UU, and I was raised in a white family, so I don't have a community outside that I've had a connection to. A lot of UUs of color in our movement who were raised by white people have serious identity issues. We don't fit in anywhere. The piece that's challenging me the most is that I don't fit in here either. The hardest thing is when you don't fit into the people of color around you. And so I stand outside again. I'm not a theist. I'm not Christian. I'm not part of a black community. I'm not coming from somewhere else. I am here as a UU because there is no place else to be because I'm multiracial, multicultural, multi-everything. And that's why Unitarian Universalism has been for me, and that's why I love it. It's also why I resent it. But it's also why it has saved me, because it said, you are welcome here, even if it doesn't always mean it. The child that Reverend Dr. Harper was is one of the reasons that I think this work is important for us here in this congregation, for Unitarian Universalist congregations and ethical culture societies as well across the country. Now, success at this work is not guaranteed. The only thing I can guarantee is that it won't be successful in 12 to 18 months. That's why the focus goal focused on assessing readiness and developing a plan. You'll notice the focus goal didn't say 12 to 18 months to multiracial congregation. No, 12 to 18 months to come up with a plan about how we might get there and whether we're ready to do it. Whether it is part of our DNA, our space in the world to be multiracial. And in some ways, I see that, of course, it must be this congregation was integrated from its start in 1944. One of the three co-founders, two were white men, one was an African-American man, a professor at Howard University. And because of that, Wes found a it difficult to find places to meet in Washington, D.C., which was a segregated city at the time. So part of me says, yes, this is in some small way who we have been. And then again, I am aware that not every congregation is called to be multiracial. Not all choose to be in what Mickey Scott Bay Jones calls that brave space together. That brave space, not a safe space, she says but a brave one. I do think that we are at a good time in our congregational life for this work. We've had about three years of somewhat significant growth, and most of the congregational literature would say that we are about ready for one of those plateaus. You know, growth never goes quite like that, right? It goes sort of like this, and then this, and then this, and then this. As we prepare for that plateau stage, what the literature tells us is it is time to do system work. It's time to think about how we are with each other, whether our policies and our structures, our systems are written in such a way to support our numbers and also our values, who we want to be in our deepest selves. The Community Relations Committee is working on creating a statement about how we want to be together, soliciting feedback from people about what should be in that. In fact, I think you'll have an opportunity to share at the Feedback Center today after platform. 
How is it that we want to act together, to talk together? So this is a time when this work is right for us. Working on our policies, on our structures, on our systems, and also on our welcome. Conveniently, the theme of the month. As I prepared for this platform, one of the things that I was uh, grateful to be able to do was to spend some time with our people of color group. That group meets monthly, and it includes some but not all of the people of color who call West their home. And um, they met and spoke without me and then invited me to a meeting to share some of their experiences. I appreciate their vulnerability in sharing that. And I want to note that it is never the job of people of color to tell white people how to do the work or to lead the education efforts, just like it's not the job of women to teach men or the job of queer folks to teach straight people. We have responsibility for our own learning if we are in those, carry those identities. But the willingness of this group of people of color who gathered together to share their experience was a gift to me. Reverend Derek Jackson, in that same book, Centering, it's called Centering, Navigating Race, Authenticity, and Power in Ministry, and it's a series of essays all from ministers within Unitarian Universalism who are people of color. Reverend Derek Jackson wrote, engaging UUs in conversation about these areas where I feel disconnected from the UU culture is hard. I often struggle with how to say something or if it's worth it. I worry about the other person's reaction, and I have to decide if I have the energy to deal with it. Often when I engage with someone about these matters, the conversation quickly turns to them, how they feel about it, how they're not to blame, and so on. Instead of engaging the issue, I'm engaging their needs, end quote. I want to just note that this book, which I really find quite remarkable um, and, and enjoyed reading, um, is, as I said, all Unitarian Universalist ministers. I would say that from a cultural standpoint, their experiences are very likely quite similar to those that would be found in an ethical society. A book like that doesn't exist within ethical culture because there are no ethical culture leaders who are people of color at this time. So um, as I talked with the people of color group, um, one of the things that we discussed was the experience of microaggressions at West and out in society at large. So I want to just make sure we have a sense, a shared sense of what a microaggression is because it's a little bit of a jargon term, right? You might not necessarily know that term. Um, a microaggression is an experience of some kind of ism or oppression, racism or sexism or homophobia um, that is small and, and often not intended to harm, and yet, as one writer in Centering said, feels like a little paper cut over and over and over again. Those microaggressions add up, and as you experience them throughout your day and your week and your month and your life, they exhaust and cause pain. So we talked about those experiences, including some that folks experienced here at WES. And I want to share a little bit of that and share folks' thoughts and invite you to receive them if you are a white person here at WES with a sense of openness and interest. 
some of the people of color talked about coming in and not being greeted or smiled at, not being noticed, perhaps because people weren't sure how to respond or how to interact. They were nervous about saying the wrong thing, but the end result was they came in and no one really said hello. Others talked about the experience of finding that there were folks at West taking up lots of space in our community conversations. They spoke specifically about white men, but not exclusively about white men, talking about all of us who have been here a while and are used to taking up that space and hoping that space could be left here. One uh, person of color spoke about the experience of having people say to her repeatedly, oh, how did you learn about us? And that was a great one for me because my immediate response was, oh, I do that all the time. All the time, I, I say to visitors, oh, how did you learn about us? And then I, of course, got defensive, right? That's the, right, you get guilt and then you go right to defensiveness. It's the best way, really. Um, and I thought, well, that's not what I meant. You know, I, I never mean it. I say that to everybody. I say that to white people. I say that to people of color. That's just one of our, our um, ways of interacting. And, and, and I caught myself, <laughs> luckily. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. You know how it goes. But I was able in that moment to catch myself and to think, here's this phrase that I didn't mean anything by, but that someone sitting in front of me is risking telling me how it felt to them. For that person, the phrase experienced as a person of color felt as though it was a suggestion that they didn't really belong there. How did you hear about us? You couldn't have found us the regular way. <laughs> White people find us the regular way. So how did you hear about us? And I thought about how that phrase might be experienced and about how I might share that phrase differently when I speak to white people and to people of color. How even in my most unconscious self, I might have just a different intonation. And so as I moved past the guilt and the defensiveness in relatively short order, I was able to get to hearing that perhaps a different phrase might be tried. Why not change a phrase so that I can be more inclusive, more welcoming? One of the folks in that group shared with me their thoughts in writing, and so I'll share with you. This person wrote, I would encourage my white co-West congregants to consider how hard it is to consistently come to a space in which you don't see a face like yours. I see other people of color sometimes, they wrote, and that's good, but I see very few people with my particular cultural background. It's very isolating and tiring. It also reminds me many times that I am the other. Then trying to stand in the other's footsteps, consider smiling, this person asks to white congregants, making small talk or big talk or extend an invitation. I think one of the things a person of color wrote, one of the hardest things I've experienced is that people don't ask about me, my cultural background or experiences. That's all part of white supremacy and the need to feel comfortable assuming that the only culture is the white experience. And then the person went on, overall, I am encouraged by how Wes has been working on anti-racism. 
I've been in many communities that don't acknowledge privilege, institutionalized oppressions, or the inherent worth of every individual. So I'm happy to be part of a community that asks for what people of color need and want and works to dismantle white supremacy one mind and heart at a time. That last comment echoes what I have heard other people of color say here at West at times that they feel at least here there are white people who want to make things better even though they, we inevitably always mess up. This is the part where if you're feeling worried or stressed about the impossibility of this all over 12 to 18 months or in fact any period of time, you can take a little breath to see the possibility that is there to know that that possibility is in itself a wonderful thing. After talking about some of what people of color had experienced here, we asked the question, what makes you feel welcome in a space? Whether it is a majority white space like Wes or any space at all. Folks talked about art that is African or black-centric. They talked about acknowledgement and smiles, the importance of the role of official and unofficial greeters, the importance of personal invitations to be involved in social activities or teams or committees, any kind of gathering, the importance to see people of color in visible and core leadership roles both on staff and in lay leadership. And they talked about how important it was to be with white people who are able to hear the ouch, the ouch that hurt, that didn't feel right, and to stay and listen and learn. White people who have built up their capacity to hear about microaggressions and to want to do better. I would add that it's important, I think, to acknowledge in this community that we do, in fact, have a white culture, that our culture isn't neutral, isn't nothing. That's a common misconception in white America, that there's just sort of like, like regular life and then black culture. Well, no, actually, there's, there's white culture and there's black culture and there's all kinds of other subcultures within those. So just looking around and noticing the way that culture shows up in our meetings, in our music, in our policies, in our communications, and to learn about ways we can be open to that culture changing and shifting. And finally, I add the importance of centering the experience of people of color. One of the commitments that we made on staff um, about a year and a half ago was that we would seek to have one person of color platform speaker every month. Not a musician or um, an officiant, not someone just involved, but someone giving the address, sharing whatever it was they were here to talk about, the environment, love, family, race at times, and centering that experience as a person of color. So there are some things we can do, and yet it is hard work. I read that book, Centering, over the summer and found it to be painful and beautiful. To read about the micro and, frankly, macro aggressions that my colleagues of color experienced, including many coming from other colleagues, that was hard reading. 
harder still to know that I have likely committed some in my time and probably will again. And I read it with an overwhelming sense of gratitude that those clergy stayed with the movement. There were two passages that stood out for me as I thought about why we do this work, what keeps the ministers of color who have had such challenging experiences within the movement, and why we do this work in our congregational lives. Reverend Summer Albayati wrote, And yet I witness in our beautiful congregations the beloveds standing together, holding hands, sometimes swaying to the music, affirming that they will stand on the side of love while embracing the person with an accent next to them. I am filled with hope and love because this denomination creates heaven every time we fill the sanctuary with love, if only for an hour or a moment. Unitarian Universalism, she wrote, can bring more persons of color, including Arabs and other Muslim Americans, into our love fest. Not because we wish to liberate them in an imperialist way, but because we have something beautiful to offer them in a culture that vilifies them. And then this from the Reverend Natalie Maxwell Fenimore. Shirley Chisholm was asked why she, a black woman, was running for president. You don't have a chance. Why are you doing that? And she said, because I am in love with the America that does not yet exist. And that's how Unitarian Universalism is also. I'm in love with the Unitarian Universalism that does not yet exist. But I have to hold, I, but I have to hold the love for the thing and the love for the reality. It does not yet exist. It will probably not exist in my lifetime, Reverend Fenimore writes. I don't think it will in that of my children, but I can't deny my love for it. You know, wanting to be there in that struggle, that's why I'm fighting, end quote. This work feels complicated. It requires us to dismantle systems of oppression, to see systemic racism and white supremacy and white culture all around us, to understand things like microaggressions, to understand the language, to build up our own capacity. It is complicated work, and it is also easy. My colleague, the Reverend Teresa Ines Soto, wrote in a sermon recently about welcoming. She said, I have a couple points about welcoming. The first one's going to use some technical language. All the people here are humans. I know, I know, she wrote, you're sort of aware of this. The thing that's easy to forget is actually that no one here has escaped loneliness. I can't say for sure not having lived every single experience, but it is way more likely than not that each person here has experienced it at some point in their lives. When you offer the warmth of your attention, the kindness of your hello, or the strength of your listening, then you are creating welcome. And it is the kind of welcome that is an antidote to being lonely. While you are offering those things, Others will be offering the same things to you. In that way, we are interconnected. 
Reverend Ine Soto wanted to share the idea that it doesn't need to be that complicated. There's a a woman in my family whom I often talk to about ideas of race and racism. And she boils it down to good manners. She says it's really good manners. I would say that it is important to understand systemic racism and white supremacy and white culture to see how they all fit together. That is good and important learning for us to do in this congregation. And sometimes it's also important to just remember your manners. Smile when you see people. Ask them how they are and listen for the answer. Don't ask rude, intrusive questions. Where are you from would be one of them. But be curious if they share about themselves. If someone tells you that you've hurt them, listen and learn how to be a better friend. Understanding systemic racism may call on PhD-level thinking. Certainly, there are enough books written on that. Sharing a spirit of welcome and care is sort of more like really good kindergarten learning. In other words, we can do this. We can create this brave space together.